Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories brought to you by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Vance Rausch. Vance is the founder and CEO of Overflow. Uh, very fortunate for a village to be an investor in Overflow. Uh, Vance, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Uh, Vance, for, for those who may be unfamiliar, why don't you give an overview of, of, of what is Overflow and how you came to start it? Yeah. Overflow is an online donation platform specifically for non-cash assets. Currently, we're focused on stock, and recently we are working with a partner to enable cryptocurrency donations as well. So it's been really cool. The way that we came about it is my background actually is as a pastor. So I helped co-found a church. It's called Vive in Palo Alto. Co-founded it with an Australian couple back in 2012, and that's grown. Uh, But most recently, members within the church were asking me, hey, Vance, how do I donate stock to Vive, the church. And at the time, I didn't know how to do it. I opened up a Fidelity brokerage account and gave them information and instruction on how to do it, but then nothing would come in. And I asked one of my friends, I was like, hey, I thought you were going to donate some stock to the church. And he said, oh, I'll do it, Vance. It's just that I have to download this Charles Schwab form. I got to fill it out physically and then fax it in. And that's how I came up with the idea. Essentially, I realized that when you tell a millennial to fax in anything, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So that hence overflow. Talk, talk about how you sort of navigated the the idea maze from hey, I want to start this 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 company to the exact iteration of uh, or solve this problem to the exact iteration of of what overflow came to be. That's a great question. I think generally you can easily go down a pathway when you look at the online donation space and get really excited about, wow, this market is actually sneakily big and want to solve every single problem within the online donation space. What I found is that there's actually sneakily, while it's a big market, there's sneakily a lot of players in it as well. Specifically, sufficient players serving ACH debit, credit, wire, cash, check, donations. That's actually the the lion's share of most donations now. And so as I was navigating the idea maze, I realized that if I'm going to create a game-changing company, the zero to one tactic is to to build a monopoly, right? To to actually create a category is actually what one investor told me. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, How can I create a whole new sector, a whole new category? The way I frame it is how can I unlock net new generosity, net new donations. And through my own personal experience, I had a conviction that actually, because stock donations and crypto donations and non-cash asset donations in general are difficult and sometimes impossible, if I can enable that in a streamlined way, if I can make it as easy as Venmo, then I actually will unlock and create a whole new category. So that's how I settled on what Overflow is today. Yeah. Or or, or talk about sort of what was the why now for Overflow? Or, or why it didn't exist at the same quality before you started it? Yeah, so two really major things have happened in the past couple of years. One is companies like Plaid. So just recently, companies like Plaid and Yodely fully released and supported their 
brokerage connected feature. So you can actually connect through your brokerage pretty seamlessly through companies like Plaid and Yodely, which is amazing. That literally did not exist before. And so for a company like Overflow, if we needed to partner with every single bank and every single brokerage, that would have been very difficult, right? And increased the amount of resources that I would need to just get started. And so that was one major technological shift. The other shift that's really happening, and we're still in the midst of actually, is the retail investor. And so there's companies like Robinhood that literally there are over, probably at this point, over 20 million Robinhood users. Half of all new brokerage accounts are created on Robinhood. And so Robinhood has totally unlocked a a category of investor that did not exist before. So they're literally adding net new investors. Alongside to Robinhood, there is companies that's basically securitizing everything. So you have companies securitizing art, NFTs, you have companies securitizing wine collections, you have companies securitizing collectibles, Jordans, uh, you know, original Jordan shoes, cars, things like that. And so our tailwind that we're riding is if it can be securitized and if it can have gains, you should actually be able to give it, right? Because a lot of these type of assets people are sitting on and they are doing really well. And some of them didn't expect it to do as well as as it's been doing. And there is this sense of also responsibility, empathy, altruism that, hey, I'm sitting on so much that I didn't even realize. I, I really should give it back to some of the causes that I care about. It's interesting. You mentioned Robinhood, of course, you know, earlier this year, there was sort of the whole, you know, GameStop, you know, yeah. sort of social movement, or there's just been sort of this all this energy around what the internet has enabled in terms of people to sort of, you know, organize and get excited about something and then put their capital behind it. And we've, you've seen sort of like this, you know, stock market culture emerge and, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolve, uh, how philanthropy evolves with with that as well. Yeah. It's going to be huge because it's so funny. What's, what's interesting is that when you look at a church, when you look at a nonprofit, when you look at a university, inherently these organizations have many, many supporters and donors. And when the leaders of these organizations go in front of their supporters and donors and communicate to them uh, and raise for a specific specific campaign or initiative, they specifically solicit for their cash, checking and savings, ACH debit credit, right? Even though those supporters and donors typically have 90% of their wealth in non-cash assets. It's literally the biggest missed opportunity in nonprofit fundraising. And that's what we're super excited about. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit and and give, talk a little bit about how just philanthropy has evolved with the internet more broadly. Like if you're to give somewhat of an overview and talk about maybe the different phases of, of how the internet has changed philanthropy or sort of uh, just, just a broad level overview in the last, you know, decade plus, or how, how would you describe sort of the major sort of transition points or eras? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a great categorization of the eras, but I do know how technology has influenced philanthropy to what it is today, right? And some of the different trends that that are happening. Specifically, something that is really clear is that 
technology is not focused on the philanthropic space at large. The little attention technology has paid to this space. It's actually streamlined and unlocked certain things. So for example, crowdfunding, right? Companies like GoFundMe, I actually was speaking to the CTO, the, the prior CTO to GoFundMe recently. And we were just talking about their iconic brand and what they pioneered in the fundraising space. And so what has been made possible uh, in the last decade because of companies like GoFundMe is really the, the long tail of fundraising, right? The ability, kind of that Bernie Sanders model, the ability to rally a bunch of people um, to be able to contribute to a cause really quickly. We actually saw this because technology exists like this. We saw this happen so well uh, with the crazy murder of George Floyd and the attention around Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, BLM, as an organization was able to raise tens of millions of dollars. And that wasn't because it was just a couple of massive donors. That was because in mass, people were able to rally around a cause and contribute, you know, $10, $20, $50, $100 to the cause. And so that is actually something really cool that technology has been able to provide the philanthropic space is to be able to, to rally people. What it hasn't been able to do is continue to actually move the needle at large, though, in philanthropy. And so what's interesting is that when something like a natural disaster happens, people are actually just taking philanthropic dollars from one place and shifting it to another place. Because if you actually look at the last 50 years, philanthropic giving has never commanded more than 2% of GDP. So it is a big space and it is a steadily growing space, but technology hasn't been able to influence or increase the pie of philanthropy. So so that is what's most interesting to me is how do we actually change that 2% of GDP to 3%? How do we change it to 4%, 5%? That's when you actually move the needle. And I would argue there's a couple of reasons why we haven't been able to do that for the last 50 years. One is generally giving is not a joyful experience, <laughs> right? I think that if it's easy, it's at least pleasant enough, uh, but mainly you were really motivated to give it. But generally when you're being solicited all the way from solicitation to transaction, especially if it's not a, a cash transaction, it's not a joyful experience. It's filled with paperwork and confirmation and authentication and movement of assets and and things like that. It's confusing and complicated. And so that's one thing I think really holding back the space as well as generally the average person not thinking that they can actually give from a different pocket, that they can actually give from their wealth. And so people having a mindset that they're really just able to give from their leftovers, whatever whatever is left over in my checking account, that's what I can give. That mindset shift hasn't changed for a really long time. I would actually say that, you know, the most generous entity on the planet today, statistically speaking, the church is the only one who's really innovated generosity, but this has existed for thousands of years, right? Through the vehicle of something like the tithe. Yeah. Let's pull that thread thread a little bit. And and it is interesting with your your experience starting a church. Talk about how and, and, and why religion and church have been one of the primary drivers of, of charitable giving. 
Yeah, it, it has to do with what I just mentioned there with, with the tithe, right? So okay. it's really interesting when you dig into the psychology of generosity and the psychology of giving, because if you look at a Christian theological point of view about generosity and giving, it's a completely different mindset. So when somebody gives to a natural disaster or when somebody gives to a civic cause, it's out of duty and responsibility. And that's not bad. That's great. Somebody realizing that they have a responsibility for their city, for their community, for their neighborhood, that's fantastic, right? But when somebody is giving from a Christian theological construct, it's actually pretty different from that. It's connected, uh, but the nuance can't be understated. So when somebody gives out a responsibility, they still give out of this notion that whatever I'm giving, that was mine and I'm going to give it away, right? And whatever was mine, I fundamentally earned. I worked for it. I worked hard for it. And because my responsibility goes so deep, I'm going to, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to give it away. In the Christian theological construct, it's actually not a giving away. It's a, it's a giving back. It's a recognition, yeah. right? So the concept of the tithe, a lot of people have a lot of myths about the tithe. Um, if you're not in the church, you can easily see it as, oh, that's a church membership fee, or that's a tax, right? Or that's just imposed um, as social pressure by the church. It's actually none of those things. When you go to the biblical understanding, you find that in the Old Testament narrative, it talks about how there are there was this guy, Abram, who won a battle and from that battle back in the day, you would get spoils. And from the spoils that he got from the battle, he wanted to honor God because he believed that God is the one who gave him the victory over the battle. And so out of an overflow of recognition and realizing I literally wouldn't have gotten any of this if it wasn't for God granting it, out of a recognition and a gratitude, I'm going to give back 10% of all my spoils to God and to honor him with it. And yeah. so literally that, that shift in mindset of whether I earned it or whether this wasn't mine in the first place, so it's easy for me to give back or, or to, to make use of it for somebody else is, is a fundamentally different thing. And so you have literally millions of families within the Christian theological framework that's giving 10% of their income gross before taxes <laughs> as a, a showcase to, to honor God, right? And that's still happening today. It started thousands of years ago. It's still happening today. And it's still today the most generous construct that we know of. 30% of all donations actually go to the local church. Yeah, it, that's fascinating. What does that look like for for the the world that that is, that is not religious in terms of how, how do you think we um, you know encourage a similar level of uh, of giving? Yeah, I think about that a lot, right? I think about that a lot because in the Christian theological framework, it it definitely goes deeper than things you can just engineer, right? And it goes deeper than maybe things that I can press on in terms of uh, something I could build in an app that produces a dopamine and, and things like that. It goes a lot deeper, right? It goes into a real structural belief system that you have. I think the best 
thing that we can do outside of that, though, is we can first and foremost rebrand the philanthropic space, right? I think if I think about millennials and Gen Z, first and foremost, the preconceived notion and the perception of charity is one that is not inspirational or aspirational at all, right? I think the picture that most people have is the guilt giving type of, of philanthropy, where you see a commercial that guilts you into giving some of your money. And, and that's not going to produce any sort of level of unlock in people, right? People don't give big out of guilt. They give big and they release resources and finance based on inspiration. So I think there has to be somewhat of a, of a rebranding. Also, one thing that actually an article you sent me uh, before, Eric, is I do believe there needs to be a, a layer that's built around social signal. And so this is what we saw, right, with AngelList, where maybe a decade ago, nobody really cared if you were an angel investor in the Valley. But fast forward because of things like AngelList and because of the culture in the Silicon Valley where, you know, you get invited to parties if you're an angel investor and you get to talk to certain people if you're an angel investor. Because there was a social signal layer that was built in, all of a sudden it's cachet, it's cool. Um, there is now inspiration and aspiration around this space of being an angel investor, even though most people that are an angel investor, angel investor probably are not good angel investors and probably will lose <laughs> a lot of money, but people will still do it because there is this social signal around it. And so because philanthropy currently today largely doesn't have a lot of those mechanisms, it's completely understated and underutilized right now. And I believe if we can actually start architecting some of those mechanisms, we'll, we'll see a, a huge influx. One organization I actually look to that that's done this really well for the philanthropic space in the last decade is Teach for America, right? So in the philanthropic space, you before, and this is starting to change, but a decade ago, it was, you didn't get the best talent the best talent was going to big companies, big tech. The, the best talent was going to banking, investments, things like that. Peace for America did something novel and unique. They said, cool, like Harvard grad or, or Stanford grad, you got a great offer. We worked with your company and they're going to allow you to defer that offer if you selflessly start teaching for two years. And they created such a brand around how that was so cachet and that was so noble and that was so cool. And people, I remember in college, people saw that as a way to even leverage a better opportunity post uh, Teach for America. And that actually brought a lot of talent into the education space. And now a lot of people that I know that did Teach for America are still in the education space because they saw the impact they can have, right? And so it was a gateway to just really increasing and elevating the discussion around education. I think we need to do that for the philanthropic space at large. Yeah, TFA was, you know, yeah, a version of like a national service, uh, and 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 Venture for America has sort of done that in a different way. Yeah, 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 taking, uh, you know, people who want to be entrepreneurs and puts them in, you know, places like Detroit or Cincinnati or Baltimore at local startups, and you know, in, in integrates them into the ecosystem, and and sometimes they go on to stay or, or start start companies in the region. Um, th th these are cool, uh, cool programs. Your, your points on social status um, as well as angel investing are really interesting because 
there's a lot of parallels. So yeah, as you mentioned, people do it for the for the social benefits. You know, they get to meet people. It's go to you know, it's like part, being a part of a club. Like you know, I'm an investor in Overflow, and so is Zaza Pachulia. So you know, I get to meet all these great people that, that you have at Overflow as, as an example. But also, you know, people get to people also get to sort of showcase what they care about. You know, people want to invest in startups that are addressing climate or addressing um, you know space or longevity or philanthropy or and and, and that's why there should be a similar you know and, and I'm excited about what you're doing here in terms of allowing people to create identity in terms of what they care about in, in their philanthropic investments right uh, because exactly you can also show hey you care about climate you care about poverty you care about um, you know education you care whatever you care about can be uh, you can build an identity or, around it as well. Exactly. You you nailed it, Eric. And you actually start started to get me on this uh, about a year ago when I started studying this. And it's so true. People now see some of their angel investments as a representation of their identity. And you can tell because when you go to Twitter or Instagram now or whatever social media platform that you're on, some people actually link it in their bio, their angel list profile, right? That is so close to your identity. Like if, if that's not identity, I don't know what is. And I would actually argue that what you give to is an even deeper representation of your identity because with angel investing, there is this layer of a return on investment, like practically and financially, right? But what you give to is really what you care about. Because there is likely no financial gain from you, you know, giving that money to that organization. So if you had an overflow profile, that really was a representation of what you cared about because you actually gave to it and it was verified. That is another layer of identity I, I think people will really gravitate to and want to share. The next level, and I'm kind of being cheeky on this, but I also think it matters, would be um, sort of figuring out how to be like a seed stage philanthropist, you know, to, yeah. how to give, give status to people who discover things early as a way yes. to incentivize them to. Well, I was thinking about this, Eric, because one of the problems with philanthropy outside of the guilt giving persona, right, uh, or perspective is just this weird stigma around, oh, people that work in nonprofits shouldn't make a lot of money. Right. Right. Like they need to live on ramen because they're doing it for the cause. And if I look at the balance sheet or the, the PL of a nonprofit and a lot of the resources is going to personnel, I'm not going to support them because they're not running efficiently. That is such a dumb perspective, right? That is just such a, a silly, not nuanced perspective because that's not even how startups work at all. Right. Venture capital literally depo- deploys and precede and seed literally just for human capital to yep. get an idea off the ground. And we're doing that for companies and some of these companies' missions, even though it's probably going to make a lot of money, which is cool. That's a good venture bet. Some of them are not noble causes, right? But then when we talk about a really talented person that wants to t- tackle a social impact cause, we don't want to compensate them appropriately. What if we took the flip side of it, right? What if there was seed stage philanthropists, right? That also wanted to attract the best talent in the world by compensating them appropriately because they're going to be tackling some of the hardest issues. I think that you could probably get seed stage philanthropists that have wealth to fund one of the most talented people to tackle something like homelessness in San Francisco. Why wouldn't we? 
because the things that we've given to so far hasn't really worked. Right. <laughs> right. So that's where philanthropy really thrives is nonprofits stand in the gap of where governments and capitalism have not yet been able to solve. Yeah. And there are gaps that need to be addressed. Let's pull that thread a little bit in terms of how, how, you, how you see, you know, we've been talking about Angelus, we're talking about, you know, philanthropy. How, how do free markets and philanthropy work, work together? Yeah, yeah. So n- number one, and actually you said this before in, in a previous conversation, but I've really leaned in on it and discovered that it's true that philanthropy defends free markets. So if a really successful company wants to exist in a city, it might not be the most capital efficient thing to take care of the city that they're in, to care about the homelessness issue or the single mom issue uh, or whatever issues that city or neighborhood or community is experiencing. There, there might not be a capital efficient solution for that, especially regarding or specific to their business but that doesn't mean they shouldn't care about it, right? And so when companies actually realize that, you know, they are building a company in a city, but they also have a responsibility to that city, it signals to the community and it signals to the the people looking at that company that, oh, that company should continue to exist the way that they're existing, right? So, the empathy, philanthropy, the sense of responsibility and civic duty actually give you the right to continue to operate in that space. I think that is really, really important or else people are going to continue to argue for more and more government and regulation, right? Which we know in a, in a free market system is not going to be the most efficient in most cases. And so I think that is true. To take another angle at it, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but in terms of bringing actual market dynamics specifically to nonprofits, I think that's really interesting. And to pull on the thread a bit more on compensating social entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders really well, like actually paying them a lot. Like what if we paid them, you know, over a million dollars to solve some of the most pressing issues because they were the most talented person. They had founder market fit on a pressing problem that we had in our society like climate change or homelessness or clean water. W- what if we did that? Then you probably wouldn't have attrition. You probably wouldn't have nonprofit leaders trying to get something off the ground and then also having three side hustles to also make a living or live a certain lifestyle that they aspire to live or provide for our family and things like that. It would just open up, I believe, so much more sustainable and exciting solutions to, to the very real problems that we have. No, I, I, I think it's really compelling. Some people will say things like, "Hey, that's all great, but that's something that the government should be doing." <laughs> how do you how do you respond to that? Oh, I respond to that saying, "Have you been to the DMV?" <laughs> no, honestly, like I mean, yes, maybe, maybe in theory, but literally, have you been have you been to the DMV? I mean, we just know the power of incentive, yeah. right? And so, I think it's pretty clear that many, and not all. But yeah. many government-run programs are, it's just clear, if you just practically look at it, it's very inefficiently run. Yeah. And w- w- going back to the CZ philanthropist, w- what's what's different about, or one difference in angel investing and philanthropy that maybe we could bring to philanthropy is sort of this, this sense of progress or the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm yes. like, I invested overflow at the pre-seed and then they raise a series A and I'm like, oh man, I'm, 
um, you know, there's all these announcements that, you know, there's sort of, it's like a video game. You could sort of get it, you yeah. get a score, you get you winning along the way, progress with the team. And could that same thing exist for philanthropy in kind of a different way, just in terms Ab- of progress? Absolutely. One of the biggest things that's keeping the nonprofit philanthropic space behind is it is really inefficient. So for example, there are 1.5 million nonprofits. Why? That's like just that's just way too many, right? There's just too many nonprofits. There's no market efficiency. The reason why is because a nonprofit can exist today with one donor. And if that is the only metric to stay quote unquote in business, that's terrible. I actually don't want to know how many total, you know, number of people incorporated in a nonprofit. That that's that is actually not as interesting. I want to know the ones that are actually making an impact have metrics that can show actual progress, right? So to your point, if there was um, a, a system and we don't have a, a stock market-like system today for the nonprofit space, which is one of the reasons we don't know fully who are the winners and losers in this space, right? But if we figured that out, it would be huge and it would give more confidence to seed stage philanthropists that, okay, my money is going into a place where I'm not even seeing it as philanthropy. I'm seeing it as an investment into a problem I deeply care about. And because there's a system in place where I can track progress, I'm confident to continue to deploy capital in that way. And so that is something that we think about often. And if there was something like an angel list for philanthropy, right? Maybe we can do, do something like that. Yeah. Talk about when, when you imagine the, the future of philanthropy, talk, talk about how, how you think about it evolving over time. Yeah. Number one, I really am excited about a future where there is a joyful experience within the transaction. We work really, really hard at overflow specifically to make giving feel more like a celebration than a transaction, especially people that are giving large sums away, that should elicit a sense of joy and wanting to do that again, right? And there's just nothing out there. There's no purpose-built technology that that's focused on, on doing that. I believe that if somebody fully realizes in that moment that they give, that there's intrinsic value, it's actually not just about the outcome. The outcome's important. That's what we were just talking about. But there's intrinsic value that, wow, okay, cool. I got to a point in my life where I can actually let go of some stuff and I can I can release it. This, this money, this hunger and, and appetite for money doesn't control me anymore. I think we actually change the mindset of people. So creating joyful experiences around giving, I think is one thing I'm really excited about in the future of philanthropy. I'm also excited about you pulling on that thread a bit more. I'm excited that that creates more of a lifestyle of generosity and not just it being event-driven right? Not just being in response to something, but proactively, I'm thinking about my philanthropy kind of like a portfolio rather than just a reactionary thing to a problem that that the media fed me or a narrative somebody fed me. But I'm going to be predetermined and intentional about the way I think about giving the same way I'm intentional about the way I invest uh, my finances, and then generally, if, if you want to just put some stats around it, right, 
$450 billion is donated today to nonprofits to, to go towards causes and problems and solutions that are trying to tackle those problems. That's a pretty big stat. That's That seems awesome. But like I said, that only represents 2% of GDP. So there's a lot of room. What if that $450 billion was 550? What if it was 600? And what if we could actually map that net new donation value to real progress and real impact, I think that would be really exciting. What if like in 10 to 20 years, that number was a trillion? To give away a trillion dollars in, in a year because we unlocked new asset classes, that would be super cool in my opinion. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I love that in terms of net, net new giving. You, you also mentioned sort of making it more effective. What sort of resources do people have right now to measure the effectiveness or in order to also get sort of more bang for our buck, so to speak? Like, what, what do you envision around how that will evolve? I think it has to be on us as donors, aspiring philanthropists, givers, to continue to hold those nonprofit leaders accountable, right? I do think that if we can start um, exposing uh, better tools and metrics to empower the leaders of these nonprofits and social impact orgs, then there is less and less excuse for them not to be able to report on progress. And then at that point, when there's a level playing field of being able to report on progress, then there is kind of a market efficiency that will happen where people are going to then gravitate towards those areas that are most, you know, quote unquote, bang for my buck right? And aligned to maybe my passion. And so I think in the immediate term, it's just, if you're giving today, making sure that it's just not a donation, but it triggers some sort of involvement and some sort of accountability that we're continuing to to hold these leaders that, that are taking this capital, deploying it across social impact causes. And then from there, hopefully companies like Overflow and a lot of other companies in the space that are starting to tackle this, because I think people are starting to realize how important this space is to create the tools to continue to empower those leaders to, to do what they need to do to be effective. Yeah. And and how about the future of um, sort of non-cash assets? When you think about, you know, yeah. crypto, NFTs, security, how do you think about that? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. We're kind of betting everything that this is going to continue to grow at such a rapid rate, right? Of that $450 billion today, most of it is ACH debit credit checking and savings cash wire, right? So that's crazy to me. When more and more people are getting empowered to invest, more and more people are literally holding most, like literally 90% of their net worth, not in their checking and savings. And so if that trend continues to hold up, companies like Overflow just become a no-brainer. People that are trying to help people give from their portfolio and their wealth just becomes a no-brainer. In terms of just specifically the the non-cash asset space, I believe that the public stock market still has a lot of room, right? I think that Robinhood is just scratching the surface and there's so many other players that are trying to get in that space as well. I believe that we're going to have another explosion in the private markets because that's becoming much more accessible uh, to 
retail investors, right? The the average uh, everyday person. And when things like Carta X, there's now liquidity to it. So I just believe that's going to explode as well. Crypto, I'm not an expert, so I can't take a strong thesis or stance on that. But it's become a formidable and 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 big space for nonprofits, right? Nonprofits are really starting to pay attention to crypto, NFTs, and things like that. We're still very, very early in the nonprofit space for that because a lot of people still don't understand it, including myself. I don't fully understand it, but it's really exciting because it's already provided a lot of value, even in this state of not fully understanding it. It's already provided a lot of value in terms of donations to nonprofits because there is a lot of liquidity in it already. Totally. Maybe as a, maybe segueing towards, towards closing here, Give us a little bit about what to uh, what to expect on on Overflow on on the roadmap and and uh, where people can get involved. Yeah, we're excited to be one of the players that really make non cash asset donations frictionless, fun, engaging, and we believe that is going to, like I said, unlock unprecedented amounts of generosity. Right now, uh, like I said, we're focused on stock specifically publicly traded stock, but we're actively working on private stock donations. We just opened up crypto. And already with that, that already represents over $40 trillion worth of assets that the nonprofit space had no access to virtually um, before Overflow and some of the partners that we're working with. And so we're really, really laser focused on that and continuing to serve nonprofits with those tools that they need to take in those non-cash assets. In addition to that, one of the most exciting things that we've been recently working with companies on like Twilio is a product called Overflow for Corporations, where the same technology that we're providing to nonprofits, we actually work with these corporations and we integrate it into their company as a really easy and engaging way for the employees within their company to give some of the stock that they're compensated with to their favorite nonprofit organizations and causes. This is super cool because it's a double whammy. Not only is the employee as a donor empowered to give stock, but the employer has a loyalty tool. Now they have a tool to increase engagement within philanthropy. And there's whole positions like social impact positions in the last decade that have really been elevated for good cause within organizations and they're seeing overflow for corporations as a real game changer within their company. And so if we can not just connect what I call the supply, which is the best nonprofits in the world, with the demand donors that actually have stock with overflow for corporations, we have probably one of the most exciting giving marketplaces that the world has ever seen. So we're, we're really pumped about that. I, I love that. That's a great place to... Uh... To close, I'm I'm inspired to be a, a small part of it, be a be a village, and and, and also on deck, um, and uh, really proud of what, what what you've done so far, and and think it's a it's a inspiring to a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs who are looking to uh, to both make an impact and, uh, and and you know do well by doing good. Awesome, thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.